0: All right, well, Romans, let's pick up our study here in Romans chapter 8, and this is an explosively liberating truth right here. Paul in chapter 7 has been talking about his own struggle in the flesh against sin, the thing that he doesn't want to do, he doesn't find himself having the strength to resist doing, and the things that he knows he should do, he doesn't have the strength to do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What an absolute um, clear expression of what it is, the condition we're in, uh, outside of Christ. In our own efforts, the best we can do is ultimately end up wretchedly incapable of saving ourselves. And Paul, uh, really, there's a certain amount of comfort that comes in knowing that an apostle, uh, a man of Paul's caliber, could so freely admit his own uh, recognition of his uh, wretchedness, his struggles in the flesh, and that kind of thing, and and Paul is writing Romans, you know, twenty five, thirty years into his Christian life, into following Jesus, and um, and and to recognize that we are never really free of the flesh until we finally. Uh, are resurrected, you know, in the rapture we get our glorified bodies uh, and this kind of thing. There's just um, there's just no escaping it for the time being. But on the other hand, once we get those glorified bodies, we'll be free of it completely. That's practically speaking. There's a day coming when we'll no longer struggle against the flesh, We'll no longer battle against the sin nature, it'll be dealt with, it'll be gone, practically speaking. However, even today, we, though we still wrestle against the flesh, Uh, Not speaking of spiritual warfare, uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's a different context, a different thing being said. Here uh, in Romans, and in so much of theology having to do with the redemption, uh, there is the discussion of how we battle the flesh, but yet we have victory in Christ. And this becomes the sort of the apex, the mountaintop of Paul's uh, expression here in chapter 7, moving into chapter 8. Eight and so let me read the last couple of verses of chapter seven, and then we'll go right into chapter eight. Wretched man that I am, uh, he's just talked about the law of sin in his members and his person, his flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. In other words, it is God who can deliver me from this body of death, and does and has through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God in my mind. But with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. As we said last time we are in Romans 7, Paul is not condoning uh, the fact that there is sin in his flesh, and he's just sort of okay with it, because after all, I'm free, and in my mind, I serve the law. Uh, uh, I serve the spirit, I should say, the law of God with my mind, even though in the flesh, I should say, uh, I still wrestle against this kind of thing. Um, Paul's not condoning or making exception for anything like that. He is simply saying that within his own person, where these two natures war, he recognizes that the battle continues on in the flesh, but he has victory because Christ has ultimately been the means through which God has delivered him from this body of death. Uh, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. And so this is the idea that we are, uh, though we physically in the body deal with this flesh we actually, in practical ways, and one day we will be able to look forward to being practically free from it, in the positional sense, we're right with God now because of what Jesus accomplished. And that is why in chapter 8, it begins right here in verse 1, there is therefore now, there wasn't before Christ ultimately accomplished uh, this, this redemption, but there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So many passages in scripture we come to and we just sort of read through them. We think, oh, that's awesome. And then we just kind of move on. There is therefore, because this is true, because Christ has died for our sins, because he has washed us clean, because he has positionally made us right with God, and so many other things that Paul has been saying to this point, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There is a a movement within Christianity that has kind of always been here, but is definitely cropping up again. Uh, And it's very much akin to the Judaizers in Paul's time, which is one of the reasons why Paul is so strongly making these statements regarding our position in Christ. Uh, As a finished thing, a settled issue, we are now fixed in a positional right relationship with God because of his finished work. This is appropriated, of course, by faith. The grace of God is received by faith. Um, But there is a movement within the Christian church uh, that is seeking to really put us back under the law. Uh, I'm not trying to get in the face of anybody particularly, but I I do want to point out that there is, in fact, a a strongly mistaken uh, element of theology in that kind of thinking. And it goes something like this, that yes, we believe that Jesus died for our sins, but nonetheless, that doesn't mean we can just live in sin and still be saved. Now, what they generally don't mean by this is that As a believer, if you are still sub, you know, sort of giving into the temptations of sin, that you're wrestling with whether or not you're saved. The idea that you know, I don't feel the peace of God in my life because I know I'm walking in disobedience in these areas and I'm struggling against it. But it's there. It's it's again, it's very much akin to what Paul is talking about in Romans seven. What is generally being said when these ideas come forth of um, uh, of 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 not really accepting grace the way the scriptures are teaching about here, the idea that there is no condemnation now for for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, there, is a, there is kind of a sort of grace plus kind of a thing underlying that theology. Uh, I grew up Catholic, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, up until I was 21 years old or so, I was a part of the Catholic Church, and this was definitely what we believed. It's definitely what the Vatican teaches, the idea that you're not really just saved by grace, but there is a meritorious element on my part that sort of partners with the grace of God um, that accomplishes salvation ultimately. I mean, they may not use the word accomplished because they would sort of reserve that for Jesus at the cross. But for all practical intents and purposes, your salvation is not really secure in the finished work of Christ unless there is a certain standard measured up to. As a matter of fact, if that standard's not measured up to, uh, there is this uh, place called purgatory in their theology, where remaining sins that have not been confessed to a priest and that are burned off, and then you can enter into what they would refer to as the beatific vision, which, and the priests that I remember talking to at the time didn't really talk about heaven in physical terms as much as they talked about it as sort of mysterious kinds of uh, things. You didn't know, in some sense, I'm not trying to be rude about it, but in some sense, the the kind of answers I was getting made it seem like it's sort of a blend between what we typically would think of as heaven and sort of nirvana-ish kind of a thing, Um, in a way. In a way, I'm not trying to oversell that. But all these ideas that sort of leave it on our shoulders to do something, to partner with God's grace in order to secure salvation, really miss the biblical point. And and I mean, like, throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament— um, there is no different gospel in the Old Testament. Nobody was saved under the law. Nobody could be saved by the law. During the period of time in the law, sure, people were saved, but they weren't saved by by measuring up to some standard of the law. Uh, Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody has gotten a passing grade. And so, therefore, there is no different gospel in the Old Testament. Again, we Probably said this a thousand, literally probably like a thousand times. Um, maybe that's slight exaggeration, but almost a thousand times. Uh, in Galatians three, the whole argument of Galatians three is the idea that the law served a purpose, and it wasn't to save anybody; it was to point to the Savior. It was to demonstrate that we couldn't keep the law and therefore cause us to set our eyes up and sort of like Paul at the end of Romans 7, who can deliver me from this body of death? I can't earn it. I can't work my way into it. I can't be saved by the obedience to the law because that was never the purpose of the law. And so therefore the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. So whenever we study the subject of the gospel and salvation, uh, you could argue two subjects, but it's when you talk about these concepts of the gospel, salvation, obviously intertwined, we, sp- we're, we see the scriptures completely from start to finish, literally from the time that God covered Adam and Eve with the animal skins that he himself went and got to cover them after their own attempts to cover themselves. God goes and starts this concept uh, this this image, this picture that would carry through all of the Old Testament sacrifices, and it's an idea that is eloquently expressed in uh, Leviticus 17, uh, reiterated again in Hebrews chapter nine. The idea that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Now that, if we understand that, that puts us in an absolutely insurmountable conundrum. There's no getting around the idea that. There is no atonement for our sin short of the shedding of blood. That is what it requires. So it's either ours or someone on our own, or someone for our sake, I should say. And this, of course, becomes the beautiful idea behind uh, John's words in 1 John, for he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the satisfaction for the righteous indignation of God against sin. Uh, and 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 therefore sinners are free because he is the because Christ is the propitiation. This is why Paul would say in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, it is a finished deal. Uh, again, to Telestai, it is finished. Jesus uttered these words from the cross. The Greek terminology there speaks of the idea of something being paid in full, and it just simply paints this perfect picture. If you had a bill and you were making payments on it every month, after it was paid in full, you wouldn't pay anymore because there's nothing left to pay. It's paid in full. This is why the concept of purgatory is not just mistaken. It's an absolute affront to the gospel because it is saying essentially that when Jesus said it is finished, they're saying, no, it's not. Uh, And so we have to remember that the gospel is God's grace plus nothing. Faith, as we see in Romans chapter 4, we see that this is something that is not considered a work. Our putting our trust and belief in the one who paid for our sins, the one who made us righteous, who justified us, is not our working. It is simply our responding to the work that he did on our behalf. And so therefore, we come, we receive by God's grace, we receive by faith, and therefore we are now standing justified In his sight. As a matter of fact, this is why Paul, later in Romans 8, we'll read this starting in verse 28 through verse 39, speaks of the idea of that which he began in his foreknowledge, ultimately uh, predestining and calling and justifying and glorifying, this whole thing. This chain that starts in one place finishes in another, and there is no uh, Paul goes on to say, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? High, depth, width, breadth, all, just any created thing, uh, angels above, demons below, nothing can separate us in this kind of thing. This is done, finished, nothing left to pay. That's why Paul can say in no uncertain terms whatsoever, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ah, but you say. It goes on to say in my Bible, for those who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Um, There is some debate as to whether that's in verse 1 or not. Uh, It it appears in verse uh, 5, where it goes on to say that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things—I'm sorry, in verse 4, I should um, say—the idea of the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The idea here is that those who are justified don't walk in the flesh and in sin. Uh, John, in his first epistle, we've referenced him already, going back to 1 John, those who are in Christ Jesus don't practice sin, is the idea. We don't live in a lifestyle of sin if we are in fact redeemed. That's one of the reasons why Jesus would talk about a good tree bearing good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. It's not that either of those trees can't produce the other kind of fruit occasionally, but the overwhelming, overarching uh, uh, description of, of, of a life on one side or the other is that it reflects... What is going on inside? What has changed or hasn't changed? A good tree will consistently bear good fruit. Not that it can't ever bear bad fruit, but it predominantly bears good fruit. A bad tree will not bear good fruit; it'll bear bad fruit. Can it bear a good fruit? Sure, but its general pattern is that of not producing good fruit. Uh, and so that is a, a, you know, a way to tell if somebody's in fact redeemed. The whole book of James is built on this premise, not of a faith plus works, but rather a faith that works, and that kind of thing. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, He goes on in verse 2, "...for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus." Very similar to what he said earlier about the idea of being released from the law. In other words, because the law has served its purpose in helping us to recognize our inadequacy, our sinfulness, and our inability to save ourselves, it drives us then to the Savior. Now, as we've also talked about, and as Paul has talked about in in his writing as well, that doesn't mean the law is this terrible thing. The law is a demonstration, an expression, I should say, of God's holiness. And so, therefore, to walk... You know, in holiness is a natural expression of a believer, somebody who has been redeemed, who has been made new. Again, Paul, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, the idea that we are new creations in Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Uh, it's not a matter of, of, of adding something to grace. It's a matter rather of living in grace and grace finding expression through the way we live our lives in response to our having been graced, our having been redeemed, our having been justified. And so therefore, the idea that there is now no condemnation in Christ should bring us really to a very, very critical, important point in our Christian lives. It should bring us to recognize a few things. First off, our complete and total inability to save ourselves. There is nothing within us. Uh, all of our filth- our righteousness is like filthy rags. I know that within me no good thing dwells. We miss the mark not only by trying and being incapable, but in sheer on transgression, shooting in other directions. We don't. We we're, we're incapable. So we recognize that. Secondly, we also come to recognize, recognize that because that is true, and we have been redeemed. This incredible transaction in him taking our sin upon himself and giving us his righteousness is something that is so profoundly generous and so profoundly loving and giving and so thoroughly justifying that there is nothing left for us to do. Our complete inadequacy meant there was nothing we ever could do. Our recognition of having been fully justified means there's nothing left for us to do. There's no reason to even think there's something we can do. And the response to that is one that is naturally going to be of tremendous gratitude. Uh, In the same way that you would never slap away the hand of somebody who paid off your mortgage, just decided to pay it off. You wouldn't slap their hand away. You wouldn't mistreat them. You wouldn't speak ill of them. You would genuinely be grateful to them. You'd You'd offer to fix things on their house, you'd, you'd offer to give them a ride if they needed a ride somewhere. You would, there's a part of you that would even say, I'd try and pay you back or something. But of course, in, 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 in the sense that what God has done, there is no paying him back. There is no earning some sense that we can say, okay, I've, I've kind of made it even now. There's nothing like that. It is so completely contrary to human nature wanting to owe, to, to pay back something that, is the, that we owe so that we can feel like we don't owe anybody anything. There's none of that with the gospel. We owe him everything. We owe him everything. But there is no expectation for us to pay him back because it's impossible. We can't. We've already covered that. There is nothing we can do to pay him back. And so all we simply do is live in gratitude. That's what grace is all about. That's why legalism is no, it's not just a poor substitute, it is no substitute for simple gratitude and living in response to that. Um, it's not a have to, it's a want to. It's not a earning something, it's a thank you for something that I've received, not a, a trying to pay back something. Um, it is so profoundly other, other dimensionally generous. There's just nothing we can do. To say that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus means that for you and I, there is no need to fear. There's no need to feel as though um, somehow that you know we're not stacking up. We don't stack up. It is only in Christ that we measure up, and it's Him that measures up, and He takes us along. So there's—but because He has, that has liberated us. And when Jesus says, no one will steal them out of my hand, no one will steal them out of my Father's hand— um, we're secure in him. Matter of fact, when we get to Romans 8, we talked about this, uh, we have talked about it before. Um, the reason Romans eight twenty eight to 39 is so secure, the idea that he will finish you know, sort of like a, an extended version of Philippians 1 where Paul says, um, you know, he who began a good work and you will complete it until the day of Christ. Romans eight twenty eight to 39 is sort of an expansion upon that concept. And At the heart of it is the idea that we have been justified, and it's because we've been justified that we can know with confidence that this finish line that God is bringing us to, where we stand in his presence unashamed and unafraid, uh, we'll fall on our faces in gratitude and worship, but we won't be afraid of judgment. Matter of fact, that's what John is talking about when he says, perfect love casts out all fear. He's speaking of that in terms of judgment. In other words, God's perfect love for us eliminates any need for us to be afraid, for us to fear judgment. We are free from it. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He in Christ has justified us. Um, I would challenge you to read through this passage again and again and again, And find the rest and the peace in God's word, where we stand on these promises, we rest in these promises. They're like a warm blanket that surrounds us and holds us until we ultimately get into his presence. There is no need to fear whatsoever. And we'll continue down on this this discussion on this passage and make our way through uh, passages to come as as we continue our study in Romans. But uh, this is a passage that you don't just want to rush through. This is one you want to sort of bask in and understand and respond to God. This is the kind of thing that provokes worship. This is the kind of thing that brings up within us a sense of unworthiness and gratefulness all put together. Uh, It is truly like the parable Jesus talked about, um, you know, who was, or the question he asked the Pharisee, you know, who... Uh, someone owed a great debt, someone owed a smaller debt. The master forgave them both. Who do you think loves more? Well, the one who is forgiven more. Well, who's to say who has more debt, really, ultimately? But we the point is that when you understand what you've been forgiven, and of course, the greater the debt, the greater the intensity of your sense of understanding of your incapableness, your incapability of paying that debt. And so it causes you to just love the one who comes to pay for it. That's all That's all it does. That's all it can do. There's nothing we can pay back. So, all right, I'm going to stop there. Obviously, I could go on and on. But um, this is one of those passages that is worth parking at for quite some time. So let me encourage you to do that. But Father, we want to thank you for the freedom, the liberation from punishment, from guilt, from shame. Uh, In Christ, Lord, we are released from all of this. No longer do we live under the condemnation of our, the weight of our sin, but Jesus, having taken it all upon himself, has removed us from it and has removed it from us. And therefore now we are clean in your sight. You see us through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and we therefore stand forgiven, redeemed, um, again, liberated. Whom the Son sets free is indeed free. And we thank you for that freedom that we now experience. Thank you for the rich theology of the book of Romans and how spending just even a little bit of time here like we are is enough for us to come face to face with these kinds of monumental truths. We pray that, Father, these truths would just overwhelm us and cause us uh, from the deepest place of who we are to simply express our thanksgiving and praise, our gratitude and worship to the one who alone is worthy. Thank you, Father. We just praise you for all of this, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.